Uh, today, we're going to talk about what's ahead here in 2014, here at the Vineyard. And uh, one of the things, so just to sort of map it out, I want to, I want to start talking about where we're going to try to go here in 2014 uh, with introducing something, or maybe it's probably a concept you've already heard before, called social capital. And what we want to do in 2014 is, is really deeply tied with this idea of social capital. So let's pray for a second, and then I want you to open your Bibles, if you could, to Matthew chap- or Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the chair seat in front of you. And let's see, uh, let me find one. And Mark chapter 5 is, I'll give you a page number here real quick. It is 697. We're going to look at one of those wild, those wild stories in the Bible. But first, let me, let me explain what social capital is, okay? Uh, some of you might have read a book. Uh, I read several of Robert Putnam's books. He wrote a book a few years back called Bowling Alone. And uh, Robert Putnam's a famous sociologist. And sociologists coined this phrase, social capital, to try to describe how many meaningful relationships and connections that, that individuals have with other individuals. So social capital is measured in your life by how connected you are to other people, in your family, friends, at work, different kinds of associations, you know, community groups, uh, sports teams, motorcycle clubs, you know, The, that's, we, we have room for the people that, that, that produce and sell meth here. We, we'll love you. Uh, we, we, we measure, uh, our sociologists measure social capital by the quality and the number of those relationships. And what they say is that without question, your level of social capital directly impacts you in every dimension of your life. And, and as my grandmother used to say, there are some things that make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and one of them is social capital. The more social capital, the more meaningful connections you have in your life with other people, the more enriched you are as a person. And conversely, the less social capital you have, the more impoverished you are. Literally, the health, the health outcomes of people who have good social capital are way better than the people who have poor social capital. And in and, and the most serious illnesses to just people with lots of social capital get sick less often. People with lots of social capital are generally more prosperous financially than people who have less social capital. I mean, it's, it's amazing. All, you, can, you can break that down, and Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, takes a research from just hundreds of sources and shows just how much our economic welfare is tied to our social capital. And social capital, for some of us, it's something we take for granted because... We have, we're rich with family and friends and relationships, 
but a lot of people aren't. And, and ironically, social capital can be leveraged towards the wrong thing also. Uh, people and gangs and criminal activities and things that uh, groups can become very antisocial. So, so social capital has power. And ironically, social capital, uh, according to Putnam, is one of the things that's the most powerful influences of our character. People who have good social capital tend to be people of better character, which in itself is a reward. There, there are more benefits to good character in your life than almost anything you can measure. So this year, we're going to focus, not that we've never focused on this, but it's going to be something we hold up on a consistent basis and say, listen, this is something we want to be a little more intentional and serious about. And we want to encourage you guys individually, because it's something Putnam in his book points out that the only way that America is going to recapture the social capital, which we lost, which I'll point out here in a second, is through individual and group initiative. Now, we've lost a lot of social capital. Uh, America, in many ways, was rich with social capital, like, like lots of communities have been, uh, communities and nations. In the late, but since the late 60s, sociologists have said, have shown over and over and over, in every indicator that they can use, American social capital has been decreasing. We're less socially engaged. We're less civically engaged. We're less engaged in our families, between family members. Families in households are less engaged. People are less in, 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 engaged at work and more disconnected. Uh, neighborhoods are less engaged and, and less connected. And there's lots of reasons for that. They're not always reasons that people like to hear. But the, the thing is, what I, I want to raise this issue to you is it's costly when we lose social capital. It is costly to everybody. But it's something that that happens slowly. It's been happening in America slowly, but surely for decades, for 50 years. And it costs us in our health. It costs us financially. And it costs us in character. And it costs us in many, 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 many other ways. <laughs> for, for the last 40 years, there, there's a group of researchers have, who've been looking at social cap capital in, in relationships. And, they, and one, interestingly, they've asked people consistently for over 40 years, do you trust people? It's a very straightforward question. And for the last 40 plus years, every year, more people have said no to that question. Consistently, it's declined in our nation. I mean, do you understand how alarming that is. When people stop trusting one another, a, a, a liberal democracy, and I'm using that in the, in the historical sense of the word, America is a liberal democracy. We can't function without an engaged, connected citizenry. Families can't function. Churches can't function. Businesses really can't function. And, and if that's true... 
we're, you know, we, we're facing some serious challenges. It, social capital is one of those indicators. It's like a person's temperature. When your temperature gets above a certain point, you're in trouble. I mean, your body temperature, right? At a certain point, bad things start happening to you. And when we start losing social capital at the rate we're losing it, we're going to keep seeing these, the, the degrading of our, of our society. I don't mean moral degradation that contributes to it. And you know, one of the questions to ask is, does the loss of social capital create moral ills or do moral ills and things create social capital? It's, it's, I don't know if anybody can really say for sure. It's a very complex sort of uh, relational ecosystem that we live in. And Yogi Berra used to say, oh, this is funny, if you don't go to people's funerals, they won't come to yours. keen observer of human interaction. The, the truth is, uh, we know that our relationships, uh, those of us who have been around long enough, we can say that the quality of human relationships in our culture have, have declined. And it's costing us, and hence Robert Putnam called his book, titled his book, Bowling Alone. Meaning, at one point, like when I grew up, there were, uh, every night of the week, there were multiple bowling alleys around, and people bowled together. They were in bowling leagues, and it was a a picture of one, you know, a one point of community, that people interacted, and they hung out, and they wore wore the little bowling shirts that said, Big Joe on the back, you know? (laughs) And uh, and it was more about hanging out with people than, than bowling. But he said, he pointed out, that you can go to a lot of bowling alleys and see people literally bowling alone. And it's not that it never happened before. It's just the number of people that aren't bowling together and the number of people of bowling alone have gone, you know, different directions, different measures. And what I want to say is, because I want to connect it to church, is I want to talk about the recovery of, of human capital and our role in it and what we want to try to do in our little neck of the woods here, uh, our country has become a drive-through society. Another way of instead of saying bowling alone, bowling alone, it's a drive-through society. And, uh, you know, in, instead of sit-down restaurants, there still are sit-down restaurants, but, uh, and I use, I drive-through restaurants too. Point being, we, instead of connecting regularly and deeply, and as a part of our lives, we tend to just drive through those places. And, you know, suburbs are notorious for it, but you can go to other communities that, that have the same uh, level of disconnection as suburbs do. But suburbs tend to, uh, to be a little worse than other parts of the country, I mean, other parts of, of, the, of each city. And so I want to ask you, you know, how is your social capital? Is, if, if you were thinking about it and trying to say this is, how I feel about the number of meaningful connections I have. Sometimes, you know, like I, I like to say, a fish doesn't know it's wet. Maybe you think you're well connected. But if you, if you just think about the connections you have with family and friends and uh, at work and in your neighborhood and, and the people around you, just stop for a second and think. 
Yeah. And, and, and even feel, as, as Dave Ramsey likes to say, when you're, when you're doing financial transactions, he likes to encourage people to use cash because when you pay for things with cash, you feel the transaction. Is there a way, when you think about social capital, that you can feel it? I mean, think of the pictures around us of how we interact I like to text because it helps me to have lots of conversations and be brief. Uh, because sometimes people like to talk to me a long time, and sometimes I like to talk a long time. And texting is a good way to do it. But if you think of how much people text today, it, it, it's an ironic thing that we text as much as we do, but we talk as little as we do. And we... And we interact electronically through mediums that are impersonal. And I know lots of people have observed this, but it's really true. And what we don't realize in the church is we've become, the church has become more drive-through than, than a community. And the, the heart of God for community is that we would do life together for the good of others. The church is not supposed to exist for itself. It's supposed to have self-interest but that, at its heart, but it's also supposed to have the interest of the community at its heart. And the drive-through society that we live in, community and the interest of others are incidental to our lives. And I'm not saying everybody, every person that goes to a drive-through window at a restaurant is a cruel, selfish horrible person. I'm just saying things slowly shape you when environments, environments in which you place yourself shape you. And we have to stop regularly and look around and say, you know, like, put your finger up, wet your finger and put it up and go, which way is the wind blowing? What, how is the world I live in shaping me? And I can tell you not as much as maybe some other congregations, we are a drive-through church. We have, more, we have less social capital than we could have. And that's not to put any guilt on anybody. We're all in this together. It's an observation I want to make because the, the heart of God is that people would be connected in deep and meaningful ways. And that they would do life together for the good of others. That's, that's sort of everybody's job description. Doing life in a community for the good of others. And we've been a pretty outwardly focused church from the birth of our church 30-something years ago. But that outward focus can mask lack of community. And one of the things that Putnam describes, and I'm going to look, we're going to look at the story in Mark 5 here. It's one of these really bizarre stories that you read it and go, wow, the Bible is full of strange things. Where do I put some of the, when we read this story, you're going to go, where do I even put some of the things that happen in this story in my mind? But he, Putnam talks about social capital, the two kinds of social capital that need to be nurtured and that we need to experience are bonding social capital. In other words, where we become part of groups that 
we feel a part of, and in a sense, they have a, a kind of an exclusive nature to us. You're drawn in to be part of something. Sorry, I got a scratch. Itch. My nose. Uh, I need a wire brush. We, uh, we need to bond. But if we just bond, we become very inward. And it just becomes about us. And then it's just self-interest in a package. He talks about bridging social capital that as groups bond, they bridge to people and groups outside their group. You see, can you, you see the rhythm of that? And, and we all seek that out. Now, we also resist both those kinds of social capital. It's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. I understand it is. Uh, I mean, you know you avoid things. We all avoid things. We avoid things that make us feel uncomfortable. And sometimes we don't know why we're avoiding them. And ironically, we have this ambivalence towards community as human beings. We're drawn towards it, but we're also reluctant to engage in it. And, you know, we're not going to talk about that today. We'll talk about that next week, all the reasons for that. Next week, we're going to talk about... uh, in Genesis 1, where God says, the, when he created the earth and he said everything was good, the first thing he said wasn't good, as the poet John Donne observed, was that we, it's not good for us to be alone. And that, that phrase there, there's a whole wealth of theology in the Bible about the theology of community. Why it's not good for us to be alone. And, and we have to take time every so often and just immerse ourselves into that because we are immersed in a society that is a drive-through society. And we, we, are, we have technology and opportunities that disconnect us and, and give us the illusion that we don't need people. And we, then we pay a tragic, terrible price because of that. And so in, here in Mark chapter 5, I want to read this story. It's, it's the story of a man that Jesus met when he uh, crossed a lake and, and came to a community. And this man was insane, and he had a, a terrible existence, and he met Jesus, and his life changed. But we want to look at this man in, in the sense of how bankrupt of social capital he was and how Jesus impacted his condition, the, his lack of social capital. So... Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, or Gadarenes, or Gennesaret. It's, it's same thing. Thank you, Jay. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit, in other words, a demon-possessed man, came from the tombs, the graveyard, to meet Jesus. This man lived in the graveyard, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Now imagine living in a graveyard. And you're not the caretaker of the graveyard, okay? Uh, it should be like a little asterisk there so you understand. Uh, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I mean, this is a person whose their life is utterly ruined. I mean, you, imagine this. And, you know... 
I, the years I lived in the campus area, I met people close to this in the campus area. Uh, as we've worked in the, in the shelters, you meet people in the shelters who their, their condition isn't this serious, but it's not far from it. You go to uh, homeless camps here in town. You, I've lived in uh, Salvation Army places before, and you meet people whose who's, who's the pain and, the, and the, their inner disturbance is so great, it's driven them from community, and it torments them. And sometimes it's just mental illness. Sometimes it's demonic possession. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's just a result of how they were treated. They just got so kicked around that they just migrated away from where they were kicked around, and it became their home. That's where this man was at. When he saw Jesus at a distance, in verse 6, he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? And I'd like to do the, like the uh, demonic voice here for you, but I don't have a real deep voice, so it probably wouldn't work. So he said, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. Now that would, I've heard, I've been in deliverance situations where demons have spoken Latin and other languages and spoken with different voices, and it's kind of weird when they go, We are many. It's just creepy, just being honest with you. It's, it, it, it's, it's weird that that goes on. Some people dismiss it. You know, that's like some primitive, weird thing. It's, when you see it, it's not. You know, this is, you're not just dealing with a, a person. There's, a, there's an entity and entities that have somehow invaded this person's life. And, and, and they torment and, and ruin their life. So, then he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Because the bottom line was Jesus was going to set this man free. And so, there was like a bargaining Going on, and so they said, uh, There's a herd of pigs feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, which is strange. I've never heard a good explanation for that, but he did. And the evil spirits came out of the man, went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 pigs, big herd, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned commodity market crashed in that community that day, right? You know, I'm sorry. The commodity part market spiked that day because, you know, the guy that had eight pigs left, all of a sudden his pigs were worth like a hundred times as much as they had been. Maybe Jesus had invested in futures and this was his way. Would that, would that be wrong? Is that kind of like, would that be a use? He probably didn't do that then. I wouldn't. Mark of manipulation. Thank you, Jay. Okay. Those tending the pigs ran off. <laughs> it would be pretty scary, right? Your pigs... Did the pigs, like, manifest and start making weird noises? Did they start, you know, singing Christmas carols? And so, you know, there's something wrong with the pigs. They run down this... Anyway, who knows what they did, but it freaked their, their, their uh, herdsmen out. They run into town. And it says... They all came back to see Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed, because he was naked. Other translations describe the, Matthew and Luke describe this man as, as naked. 
He just lived out in the wilderness naked, cut and scarred and, and just tormented. He was dressed, clothed, and in his right mind, he was sitting there with Jesus' disciples and some other people, just like a normal person again. And they'd never seen him like that before. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus, leave their region. I think they're wondering, we got a lot of weird people like that around, and we can't have our whole agricultural industry destroyed. <laughs> so leave. Get out of here. You know, If you're going to send them into all the animals, we don't need you in this town. And so Jesus got into town, but says as he was getting into his boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him and said, go home to your family. Now get this, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, which is a word for ten cities, you know, ten little communities together like in Minneapolis and St. Paul, they call it the Twin Cities. Dallas-Fort Worth. Well, they had 10 villages and towns together. Tell the people in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them. And all the people were amazed. Now, the, this man was in the grip of a power that was ruining his life. But you notice he was bereft, bankrupt of social capital completely. And if you go through the Gospels and you see Jesus healing people, his healings often enabled them to re-enter society productively. Because people who were blind or lame or whatever, that disconnected them from the community. They couldn't earn a job. It affected their relationships. Sometimes it, it, you know, it sunk their families. It just turned their life upside down. You know, handicapped people in developing countries don't have the options that people have in an information society like ours because they're much more labor-oriented. And it was, that was the labor market back then. That's, what, that's the job market back then, was you're a laborer. And so you're crippled, you're blind, you know, you're, you're, you're lame, you're maimed, you have serious injuries and pain and things. Your, your social capital just starts evaporating. And Jesus would heal people, and, he, and they would re-engage the community. And so there's a, the simple lesson of this is Jesus, Jesus himself is the source of social capital. All the social capital, that, the, the ability to engage and, and to have lives of rich social capital come into our lives through Jesus. I'm not saying you can't have any relationships. They're, they're quality and, the, the, and that you can't have a lot of them. But on the whole, we can see over and over and over in the gospel stories and, and in our stories the difference that Jesus makes when you meet him. When you find out who he is and you realize you know, what he wants for your life, and that God brings those things, that all the good things that you long for in your heart come from God to you through Jesus. That when you have a relationship with Him, what God has for you comes to you through Him. And that it's a gift. That's what He said. What did this guy do to deserve this? He didn't have the ability to turn his life around. He was powerless. 
Nobody could help him. I have friends like that. I have friends who used to be like that. I had a friend who was in a ministry with me named uh, Joe Revert. I forgot his last name. He was an African-American guy. and He was from Youngstown. And he, he when he was 15, he started doing, I, uh, we, I knew him in his, in his mid to late 20s, but he'd, he'd, been, he'd used heroin, he'd mainlined heroin for 11 years. And he met Jesus and he got delivered cold turkey. No withdrawal. God changed his life. Jesus can do that. And even if Jesus doesn't do that immediately, he gives people the power over time to, to, to live life, a, a completely different quality of life. And so you see this man in the grip of something. And some of the things that we're in the grip of that keep us poor in social capital is, I know, you know, America, we really value self-reliance, right? It's part of our, you know, in, in the, what was the battle that Paul Revere was involved in where he warned people that the Redcoats were coming? Concord, the Battle of Concord, is that it? And, you know, we talk about Paul Revere, Paul Revere, you know, uh, one if by land, two if by sea. But you know what? Paul Revere running around waving a lantern wouldn't have done anything unless there was a whole network of people who communicated with one another and were ready to spread the signal. Do you see? It would have just been one guy riding through town. Oh, the, the Redcoats are coming. Yeah, that would have really roused everybody all across that region of, you know, Massachusetts. It took this web of relationships to communicate the warning and then to respond to it, you see? But we have this self-reliance ideal. And let me tell you something. Not all self-reliance is righteous. I mean, can we be straightforward here? A lot of our self-reliance is sinful. And it's oftentimes a reaction in our life to experiences we've had all through our life. The, the, I, I quoted before, you know, every, most people know John Donne, the, 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 uh, I don't know if he's British or Irish or Scottish, somewhere over there in Europe. He said no man, he, he went through a time in his life where he was really ill. And he was a believer. And God worked in the community he was in so profoundly when he came out of this illness, he wrote that famous poem, that piece where it says, no man is an island unto himself. Every man is a part of the whole. Because he realized as a person who, had, in, in, in a sense, he was autobiographically saying, I used to think that my you know, rugged self-reliance and independence was noble. And then I realized how finite I was and I, how much I needed other people and how much other people needed me. But that self-reliance can become really a dogged, entrenched attitude that keeps us from people. It, it can keep us from people. And it does. When you read through the, the stories in the Bible, they're very down to earth and they don't, they don't paint, uh, they don't create saints without flaws. The only person that you see in the Bible that doesn't have any flaws is Jesus because he was the son of God. But everybody else, all the saints and the people that we admire, they were very earthy people like us. And in the creation account where Adam and Eve were created, 
As soon as they sinned, there were two human emotions that immediately were described in the book of Genesis. They chose to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and immediately they they realized they were naked and they felt ashamed. And shame is this universal experience. And so they crafted fig leaves to hide their shame. And there's no sexual connotation in that. I know that... There are are churches that say that. There's no sexual connotation in that. They were hiding. They felt ashamed. Their bodies were filled with something they'd never known before. And you know what it's like. Many many of you can can recognize. There are times where you feel certain things in your... It's the emotion you feel. You feel in your body. It's like you feel the, the grief or you feel the anger or you feel the joy, the energy. Like our bodies are these amazing things that God's given us that's part of who we are. But they felt shame and it was so potent. They, they, they didn't know what to do with it, so they, they, they tried to hide it. And then when God came in the garden, it says they heard God, who before they'd walked with him and talked with him, they felt afraid of God. And so they hid behind bushes. So they felt shame and fear. Sound familiar? These are two feelings that keep us from community. And a lot of times we're so used to them that we don't even consider how much they are shaping the way we choose to live our lives. And a lot of, at the heart of the promises of the gospel are God wants to take the shame out of your life and he wants to take the fear out of your life. And Jesus is the only one that can meaningfully do it. I'm not saying, I always try to qualify this when I, say, when I, when I sell Jesus, is to say, it doesn't mean that you can't make changes in your life without Jesus. But they're going to be at the margins of your life. They're going to be at the margins of your life. And the things that are the most controlling of your life, that cause you the most problems, are, they're, they're out of your reach. It, but Jesus, they're not out of his reach. And when we come to him and call out to him, we can challenge the self-reliance, the fear, the shame, and all the other things that, that are going on along inside us that keep us from community and rob us of social capital and the good and rob us from helping other people experience social capital. Because remember, we're trying to experience bonding and bridging. I, I just use these terms. I could use other ones. But I think, you know, these are kind of interesting. They're very descriptive. And I think they, they connect with, with different parts of us that are equally important. And so, God wants the church, and, and this is an ironic thing, in America, they've, as they've tracked social capital and as it rises and falls, for the first 250 years of America's existence or more, we were a country that was fairly rich in social capital, but it wasn't like a plateau. It went up and down. But it, the, the, the level of social capital was way higher than it is today. But they can trace, historically, there's been several significant spiritual awakenings in American history. And Putnam, who's not a Christian, and I, I, I left a book in my office, 
just you can see what it's like. If you, it's an interesting read. Some of you might not be kind of wonky, statistically oriented people, but it's an interesting read. It's got a lot of stories in there too. There's even some pictures, and you can color. <laughs> uh, if you like pictures, okay. But there's graphs. There's graphs in there. I pass over the graphs. I kind of my eyes glaze over, and I, I don't understand what all those little dots plotted mean. Every time I see those, I go, "Wow!" I'm just glad. I remember nothing of statistics in college. <laughs> what did that mean? Well, Putnam says over and over and over in here that, sorry, Greg. Greg's an actuarial. I don't mean to tell me. Uh, we, as a country, when we've experienced spiritual awakenings that have been widespread, the sociologists say there's a spike in social capital. And what they've come to understand, Putnam, and Putnam wrote it in Bowling Alone, and then the other one, the next book, companion book, was uh, Better Together. He took a whole chapter and wrote about the impact of religion by highlighting a church that Rick Warren pastors in, in Southern California, and he went there. And he said, I, I, I read an article in Life about this, and I'm sorry, Time Magazine, where Putnam said, I'm not a believer. I don't have any, you know, religious leanings at all. But he said, I heard Rick Warren. I'd go there and listen to him. And he said, I wanted to become a Christian. I wanted to believe in God. And as I, as I got around those people who in this church were largely people who weren't raised in church or had kind of given up on church, they heard who Jesus was in a way, a compelling way. And that church... That, that church has 45,000 people in it. Okay, that's a big church by any measure. But it's a church that is composed of small groups. And so Putnam said in measuring the social capital of that church, they were like, wow, this church, a lot of the people here have a very unusual degree of social capital. And he said it wasn't, he realized it wasn't just, as they looked at it, it wasn't just because of the size of the church or that people could go to a place because that's just a crowd. He said that what they had done was in their small groups, they had found the context for community and for building social capital because their small groups had a bonding element and they had a bridging element. That, that they were groups that did life together for the good of others. And so that's our target this year, is we want to aim at this year doing life together for the good of others through small groups. And we're, we're starting, we're, we're going to revamp our whole uh, small group operation because we've been a church with small groups and we want to become a church of small groups. Now, that may sound like semantics. Is that any different? It really is. We're, we're going to shift and slowly transition to becoming a church where the, the primary uh, business of our church functions through small groups of different kinds. And the main one's going to be, we just call them life groups. They're just home groups like what we've done. But they have a, a focus beyond just the group meeting. We're, we're, we're going to add a focus where the groups exist for the good of other people. They're going to be, have a bridging focus 
to build social capital by bridging, that the groups are not just going to be inward-oriented groups, and that's good. We need family, but we also have a call from God and a mission to serve and live for the good of other people, for the glory of God and the good of other people. So I want to introduce a couple of people. Steve and Mary Hamrick, why don't you guys come up here? And we're going to introduce a bunch of people. So when you come up here, Steve and Mary are going to be taking over the life groups and all the, all the small groups because we have different kinds of small groups. And in fact, there are some little forms I want to pass out if we didn't pass them out yet. Uh, is, is Mel in here? No, it's a little, uh, do me a favor, go in the office, Jay, you got a key. Oh, they're in there? Okay, good. I wasn't sure that if they got in or not. Good. Uh, I'll address that in a second, but Steve and Mary are going to oversee all the life groups, small groups, and coach and coordinate all that. Uh, they've been in our church for quite a while and uh, on and off. There's a little gap there. And, uh, uh, They've led small groups and pastored, pastored in churches and overseen small group ministries. So they're going to be helping us do that. And so this is Steve and Mary Hamrick. And all of our staff, well, most of us, we have these little cards. Uh, we're kind of like Mormons. You know, we got the little thing. I couldn't, I couldn't resist it. I'm bad. Bad. Bad John. Bad. <laughs> Elder. Yeah, we could say Elder Mary, Elder Steve. One of my friends one day when they came to our door, a bunch of us uh, guys in ministry asked, the guy, they were talking to us, and the guy goes, what a coincidence, you guys both have the same first name. <laughs> they got real red, you know, and, and, I, and I just I said, don't do that, man, that's, that's mean, that's mean, yeah. So Jay, Jay and Maggie, is, is Maggie around? Okay, someone, someone corral Maggie, Jay and Maggie. Uh, oversee Outreach and Mercy Project. And you guys know with Mercy Project, all the stuff that we've done over the years, uh, feeding uh, the homeless, Rebecca's Place, uh, feeding people at, gosh, yeah, the food pantry, uh, the produce outreach. Come on up, Mag. And then uh, Rick and Mel, why don't you guys come up here? Do you have a microphone? No, we're, not, we're keeping the microphones away from you. <laughs> Rick and Mel, uh, come, here, come, in, come in here, Mel. Uh, these are different uh, pastors and staff. Rick oversees the youth, and Mel oversees the next generation kids. She's also like our, our office admin person, main person, wheel in the middle of the wheel. And Lisa's not here today. Lisa's one of the teaching team. Jay teaches on Sundays with me and Lisa. Uh, and, and Kathy, where's my wife, Kathy? That's her in here. She'll be coming up. This is my wife, my better half. I'm only here because of her. Believe me. <laughs> uh, let's see. That's the, that's our, is, am I missing anybody on staff? Anybody else here? Yeah. Cause trouble. That's what you do, Maggie. No. Maggie and Jay are, just a gift to God from us. They spend most of their time with the, with the poor and serving people and uh, blessing the world. So uh, you guys stay here for a second. Now, uh, small group leaders, there's a few of you here today. Uh, this is, uh, we do the congregational. We're going to have to do congregational meetings in the spring instead of in, in February when it snows. Uh, Diane, Teets, and Donna 
lead a women's group. Kathy McAfee, stand up, Kathy, wherever you are. I saw you in here earlier. Kathy McAfee, Donna, Diane's out. Uh, Diane's in charge of hospitality, so she's out there. Uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Mel leads a small group. Uh, Rick oversees Real. Uh, and then the, the, who's, who leads the, the, the group, the I Am Second guys up at uh, Katamu? Okay, is Austin here? Austin's no, not here, okay. He sleeps in Austin. Austin, yeah, he sleeps in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's millennials. Uh, Austin's 19 or 20. And uh, who, who else? Anybody else? Any other groups like that? Okay. Uh, I lead a, Kathy and I lead a home group. Uh, there's other people. I'm just drawing a blank. I'm sorry. That's it? Okay. And then Steve and Mary are going to be starting a life group in here in late February. And so we'll, they'll, we'll be keep, the next couple of weeks we'll be telling you a little bit more about that. Then uh, let's go through some of the other ministries. Uh, Mike Wannett does all the technical stuff back there. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah. And Mel, Mel coordinates all the... Uh, uh, Mel Dynasta, stand up, Mel. We have to, she, all the media people, she handles that. And then uh, Bob Stiles, where's Bob and Leanne? I saw him here somewhere. Bob, stand up. So Bob coordinates all the worship teams that we have. Yeah. And uh, who else is on the worship team? You guys, we, we appreciate you. There's a bunch of you. I don't know how, yeah, don't, don't go like this, Kim. So it's like whack-a-mole today. Stay up. Okay, anybody? There's more. There's people back there. Uh, yeah, James. Who else? I know there's like 20 of you. you know, this church, you'd think, I'm not going to say it. People don't like to be acknowledged for all the cool things they do. Dick and Cindy, where are you guys? They, they, they coordinate the coffee bar. Or they're teaching kids. How many of you teach Youth here, middle school, high school, next generation, stand up. Thank you, guys. There's a bunch of you. Yeah. There's, that's it. It's here. Okay. I know a lot of people aren't here today. Yeah, they're in the classrooms. There's a whole bunch more down there doing that. Yeah. Uh, we also have, uh, besides the life groups and our regular home groups, we have healing care groups, which are 16-week groups that are focused on just helping people work through emotional issues and their uh, Excellent groups. I've been through one and led a bunch of them. Uh, yeah, Greg. And who leads? Who helps lead those? Kathy, Greg, and Maggie. Maggie, stand up. So people can see Maggie. Where's Greg? Greg, Maggie, me, Kathy. Who else? Yeah, Christy Bonville's not here today. She's a nurse. She's working. Uh, and we also have a divorce care group. If you've been through a divorce and you want to kind of sort out some of that, uh, we'll be starting that this spring. And Mike and uh, Nicole Racy, who aren't here today, they'll, they'll be leading that. Uh, let's see. Did I miss anybody else? Counters. The what? Counters. Counters. Yeah, if you count on Sunday. These are people we really trust. I want you to stand up. <laughs> Come on, Mel. You brought it up. The, the cleaning team. All right. It's just, some of this is getting out of control. Okay. Uh, then that's, that's it. You guys can have a seat.
So what I want to ask you to do is, if you personally see, now you may not feel this as, as keenly personally, but if you either see the need personally, like your social capital is not where you'd like it to be, or you see around us in our community and, and here in the vineyard, you know, we need more social capital. What I want to ask you to do is inside your program, there's a little sheet for you to fill out. And it just gives you a few options. There's other things you can do, but these are, I think, the most crucial in terms of trying to, to shift as a church from a church with small groups to a church of small groups. And, and again, our, 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 our mission in this is our life groups are going to be places where we do life together for the good of others. I mean, that's what spiritual growth is about. That's why I practice disciplines. I want to be closer to God, but I also want my life to, to benefit other people. And if I get closer to God, it's going to make me a better person. It's going to be, make me more trustworthy, more generous, more understanding, uh, truthful. All the, all the qualities and virtues that, that people prize, they come from being connected to Jesus intimately and deeply and consistently. But they also come from being in commu- the community of Jesus. Because if, if you can get people together who don't even know Jesus, and it can be proven that that benefits their character, how much more does it impact us if we walk and do our life together for the good of others? So there are options in there, and I'd like you to just check ones that you want. And if you check all of them, well, we're going to pray for you. Because we know that you're, 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 you're prone to being overcommitted and, and overly enthusiastic. Uh, but put your name and your email uh, at the bottom uh, legibly. All you physicians out there, just print. Okay, don't, don't do longhand. Uh, and we like, I just want to pray for a couple of minutes. And we have a little ministry time, but I want to release you to leave if you need to, okay? But Scott, why don't you guys, if you come up for a minute. You know, this, if, if, if social capital was easy, we'd all be rich in it, right? But it's not. I mean, we, we all struggle with this. Everybody does to some degree. Even the most sort of gregarious people can sometimes be the people that aren't necessarily the most deeply connected people. And sometimes, ironically, the people who are the shyest can be the people who have the deepest connections with others. And so there's, you know, there's no ideal person. We don't want a, a cookie-cutter human being here at the vineyard. We want everybody with all, all of the diversity that God created among us. But we need His grace to get there. And I believe that there's some of you like as you look down that list, there's some of you that God's called to host life groups, to help lead life groups. And hopefully our goal is, is to have at least 80% of our church because we have only a little over 40% right now that are in any kind of small group. And we want to get over 80% of our congregation in small groups. Not, if we can do it this year, that's great, but that's the goal. And from all the... All the uh, writing about this, that when you, it's hard to get a whole lot past 80% because churches turn over. My friends at Vineyard Columbus, every year, 
they lose 1,700 people a year. And, and, they, and they're still growing. So it, the, the, the mobility of our society you know, works against our social capital because we're constantly disconnecting and moving and moving around. And so you know, we want to encourage you guys to, to move towards this. But it's something that you need to ask God to help you with. Because some of you, have, you've, had, you've been burned, you've gotten disappointed, you've failed, whatever. God, God is the God of new beginnings. He doesn't give us a second chance. He gives us a new beginning. And he gives it to us over and over and over and over and over. But we have to present ourselves to him and say, okay, I'm going to allow God to weave my life together with other people that we can begin to do life. I want to begin to do life together under the leading of God's spirit and his guidance and his work in my life, I want to do life with other people. I don't want to do life alone anymore. I don't want to bowl alone. And people who have the least social capital are almost always the most spiritually hungry people. And so the community around us, which is really... It's not clearly not bankrupt in social capital, but it's, it's needing social capital. There's so many people that are hungry. And if we build life groups and we form life groups that become good and healthy in the bonding social capital, we can bridge and connect with people all around us who will be desperate for that kind of relationship. But it's something we're going to have to do individually and we're going to have to do it together. So you're going to hear us talking about this. Uh, We're going to keep it front and center. And we're going to have stories about it. And and you'll hear every time we start a new group, we'll talk about it like we do on Sundays. uh, Just a brief intro and where it is, etc. But I want to encourage you guys, we, we will not twist your arms. We're not going to guilt you. I wanted to talk about the positive aspects of social capital. They want to say, you guys are bad. We're all bad because we're not whatever. Because I don't think that's the heart of God. But he is challenging us, I believe, to look at our lives and say, do I want to live like this? God, is there anything you want to say to me about how I do my life with respect to other people? And am I, am I in the habit, sorry, of avoiding connecting with other people and if I am why am I doing that is it shame is it fear is it self-reliance is it some other idea or feeling or something